The following lecture was delivered at the 17th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Mordechai Dinnerman now presents his lecture, The Evolution of the Talmud. Every book has a story. And the Talmud, arguably the most essential book to Judaism, has a story as well. And that story consists of the authorship of the Talmud. Obviously, that would be chapter one to the story. But then there's the transmission of the Talmud from the time when it was composed and sealed and ratified sometime in the 6th or 7th century until it reached us today. And that's a fascinating tale of transmission that begins in the age of manuscripts and culminates in the age of printing down to today, the age of the World Wide Web. We are going to look today at a few brief chapters of this fascinating story. By no means will we be able to cover all of it. We're specifically going to uh, focus on the manuscript age and on the print age. And notice how the Talmud uh, came uh, survived against considerable odds in order to reach us uh, today in the year 2023. So we'll begin with the manuscript age. And the question that we'll start with is what is the oldest Talmudic manuscript? Okay, so from the time that the Talmud is, uh, is ratified and sealed, it is written by hand. That's the definition of the word manuscript before the age of printing. And so throughout the Middle Ages, it's copied painstakingly by hand. What is the oldest manuscript that we have today that we can see, that we can touch, that we can say assuredly, oh, we know when this was actually written? So the answer is, it's actually not all that old. And you're looking at it right now on the screen. This is the Talmud from Tractate Chrysus. This is one of the 37 tractates of the Talmud. This particular copy, beautiful calligraphy, was discovered in the Cairo Geniza. We spoke about the Cairo Geniza yesterday. We're not going to go uh, to, again and discuss uh, the history of this, uh, of this wonderful archive. But just briefly, uh, this was a synagogue in Cairo where many manuscripts and documents had accumulated throughout the Middle Ages and even in the modern era and uh, kind of came to the public's attention in the late 19th century and from there has been uh, and was eventually taken from Egypt and is now in different libraries around the world. So this particular manuscript that you're looking at is, at the, is in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. And the blessing about this manuscript is that it has a colophon. A colophon is that scribal note that a scribe would write at the end of the manuscript, giving some information about who he is, where he is, and why he's writing this manuscript. And I say he because the majority of these scribes were males. There were some instances of female scribes as well, though that will not be part of the presentation today. So let's have a closer look at the colophon on the screen. And you can see in the bigger letters it says, Uslika Mesichta de Crisus, I have concluded the tractate of Crisus, Bisayata de Mare Shmaya, with the help of God. And then we get the date. And the date is Adar Aleph, that's the month of Adar, Dalid Tuf Tuf Pe Gimel Le'olam. That is the year counting from creation, the year Tuf Tuf Pe Gimel. 
The equivalent of that, I'll come back there in a second, the equivalent of that year is 1123 of the Common Era. So this is a manuscript that was copied in the year 1123. There are certainly manuscripts that are older than this. And that can be told by looking at the paper, by looking at the ink, by looking at the calligraphy. The problem is that there is no colophon. Without having the colophon, we don't have the exact date. This is the oldest one that has an exact date, and it brings us to the year 1123. Now, if you're looking at the left side of this colophon, you'll notice there are two vertical lines of script. And what that says is, Elef nun hei lechorban. It is 1,055 years since the destruction of the temple. And it says as well, Elef tuf lamid dalid lishtaris. 1,434 years uh, since the counting of documents. So in other words, and I'll explain a little more what that is in a second, the scribe decided to add in, after writing the colophon, to add in these two other ways of counting. They all equal the same year, but he figured it was important to give you three ways of counting the same year. He goes on to say who he wrote this manuscript for. He says it's for a rabbi by the name of Nisim. You can assume that it's somewhere in the Middle East, maybe the land of Israel, maybe Egypt. Uh, that's judging by the script itself. And he then goes on to bless him for five or six lines, that this Rav Nisim should be successful in all of his endeavors. It's a really nice blessing. And part of the blessing caught my eye, and I'm pointing to it right there with the red arrow, where it says that God Yimaltehu will save him from Mikaf Noiksim. This is from oppressors, from the hand of oppressors, Visare Misim, and from the ministers of taxation. Okay? Isn't that a... <laughs> Isn't that an interesting blessing? Right there in the oldest colophon that we have, at least as of today, from uh, the Talmud. Let's talk about it, the dates for a minute. He gave us three dates. He first told us uh, 4883 from creation. Now, for reference, we're in 5783 for creation. Then he said 1055 since the time of the destruction. And he said 1434 from the counting of documents. Uh, in the Middle East, many different societies, including the Jews, when the general who uh, had the last name, who was known as the Seleucid general and later founded the Seleucid dynasty, in uh, the Middle East. He was a general for Alexander the Great. When he won uh, victorious in one of his battles around the year 311 or 312 before the Common Era, uh, he started counting from that victory. And then many of the societies living in the Middle East started using that, including Jews. And this was known as the counting for documents. And that's because this dating was used most often in uh, contracts, marriage contracts, business contracts, and the sort. And this scheme was, in, uh, was being used for many, many centuries, uh, and depending on the, time, uh, on the region, it kind of withered out, and the more standard way of counting from the time of creation. So here, he gave us all three of these different times of reckoning. Jews uh, would use all three of these, counting uh, from creation, from the destruction of the temple, and from the Seleucid era. Uh, interestingly, as I said before, it comes out to 1123. This is a little before Maimonides. Maimonides comes to Egypt about 30, 40 years after this. Uh, Maimonides was not born yet in the year 1123. But when we study Maimonides' Mishnah Torah, we find that he, in multiple places, also wants to tell you what year it is. He actually does this three separate times in his work. And in 
two of the places he does the same thing. He gives you all three forms of counting. This comes from the laws of Shemitah. This is every, the sabbatical year, every seven years. And he, the Maimonides feels it's important for him to let the readers know which year is going to be this sabbatical year. And so he tells you what year we're in now when he's writing this and how far away is the uh, nearest Shemitah. And for that, he says, we are right now from the destruction in the year 1107. He says, from the document uh, way of counting, we're in the year 1487. And for creation, we're in the year 4936. So we see this must have been a convention at that time to kind of use all three. Maimonides did it a little later in the 12th century. This scribe did it a little earlier in the 12th century. And this was just kind of the way it seems it was done. Why it was necessary to do all three of these, I don't know. Why, it was why the scribe did one in the actual colophon and then chose to add the other two later, I can't tell you either. So this is uh, an important manuscript just because of that colophon. It gives us the oldest date. As I said before, there are definitely older manuscripts as well, and we'll talk more about it soon. This one, though, is the one with the oldest date. And now, if we spoke about oldest, now I want to talk about fullest, the most complete. And I'll introduce that by referring to the following Hasidic book that uh, was written by a man named Rafal Nachman Akoyen Khan, and uh, he studied in the village of Lubavitch. In the village of Lubavitch, there was, this is where the, most of the Chabad Rebbes lived, and that's where they held their court. And there's a yeshiva that was established there at the end of the 19th century, and he was one of the students there. And in this book, he recounts his memories of this village and life as it was there in the yeshiva. And he reports the following brief anecdote. He says, one day a rumor spread in Lubavitch sometime around between 1910 and 1914, a rumor spread in Lubavitch that the Rebbe Rashab, this is the fifth Rebbe, Reb Shalom Dovber of Lubavitch, has received a very interesting volume, a new book that has just been printed and published, and it is a facsimile of a unique Talmudic manuscript. So this is the beginning of the 20th century where it started becoming a thing to uh, go into a library, find a priceless, important manuscript, the technology was up to date where you can take images of that, produce a facsimile volume, and then sell it. Usually these were expensive. And it's from a unique Talmudic uh, a manuscript that's in Munich. And the Rebbe Rashab has purchased a facsimile of that manuscript. And all the boys who are spending their entire day in Talmudic studies are obviously very interested in that. And so he says that one day he went over to the Rebbe's attendant and he said, look, the Rebbe is not in town right now. It was the summer and he was away. Uh, can you please let me into his room so I can look at that volume? And I don't know why, but the attendant said, sure, no, no problem, I'll let you in. And he lets him into the room, and indeed he opens up this facsimile volume of the Munich manuscript, which I'll show you in a moment. At that point, the attendant runs in a few minutes later and says, you have to leave right away. The Rebbe just made an emergency return to Lubavitch. He's visiting the gravesite of his father. Surely he's going to come here right after, so you've got to get out of here. And so he only had a few minutes of exposure to the facsimile of this particular manuscript. So what manuscript are we talking about? So here is the page from inside this manuscript. And you can see the font is written extremely small, minuscule, minuscule. And the reason for that is, this is a complete 
Talmudic manuscript. In fact, it is the only surviving complete Talmudic manuscript, which means as follows. There are many manuscripts from the Talmud that were written in the 12th century, in the 13th century, in the 14th century, and in the 15th century. However, it's usually one tractate, two tractates, three tractates, and we can understand why. If I'm going to commission a scribe to write for me a tractate of Talmud, it makes sense. I'm only going to commission what I need right now. I'm studying the tractate brachot this year, so please write for me tractate brachot. Why would I commission the writing of a complete set of the Babylonian Talmud? That's awfully expensive. So I'm not saying it never happened. It probably did happen, but it probably wasn't so usual. And when you consider the fact that there were multiple times in our history when books were burnt and confiscated, we're not going to have the ability to talk about that very often. So then it makes sense that the Talmud didn't have a high survival rate, which is why today this is the only complete Talmudic manuscript that survives. It has a colophon, which is why we have some information about it, most notably for our purposes right now, that it was completed in the year 1342 in France. The block letters that you can see closer to the inside of the book, both on the right-hand side and on the left-hand side, that is the Mishnah. The Mishnah is an earlier layer of the Talmud that's uh, composed around the beginning of the third century by Rabbi Yehuda. So that is given more prominence by being placed in block letters. The Talmud, which is the subsequent layers of rabbinic discussion in the centuries thereafter, is pr presented in the more cursive and smaller font that you're seeing. I want to impress upon you how much coverage you get on this one spread of Talmud. Because this is just one page. It is the end of chapter one of Kedushin, is on the right-hand side. And toward the bottom, the lower third of the right-hand side page, the second chapter of Kedushin begins. How much coverage of Talmud do we get here? Compare it to this. This is the exact same material from a modern-day Talmud, the known as, we'll talk more about when the Talmud got this look shortly, but where I made it highlighted in yellow all the way on the right-hand side, and where I made it highlighted in yellow all the way on the left-hand side, which is one, two, three, four, five, basically six complete folios of Talmud uh, are presented in our Munich manuscript on one, fo on one folio, on one spread. Uh, now, to be sure, this has commentaries. There's Rashi here, and there's Tosfos here, and we'll talk more about that soon. But still, even if you were to uh, adjust for that, you're getting a lot of material covered uh, on, in this Munich manuscript on one spread, which is how the entire book can consist of the entire Talmud. So let's have a look at the colophon itself and see what we can learn from this colophon. It's presented over here. The reason this page looks considerably different is because there's only 37 tractates that have Babylonian Talmud. But the Mishnah consists of roughly, depending how you count, 60 tractates. So those extra tractates are Mishnah without Talmud. This scribe put that there as well. Now remember, his style is for Mishnah, he gives you block letters. This is Meseches Kinim. Meseches Kinim does not have Talmud, it's only Mishnah, which is why the entire page appears in block letters. And toward the left bottom is where we see the colophon. I'll make it a little bigger and we'll read it. I also typed it out on the right-hand side. I am Shlomo, the son of Shimshin. I have written this manuscript for our teacher, Rabbi Matisya, 
who's the son of Rabbi Yosef. And I wrote Kol Hashisha Storim. I wrote all six sections of the Mishnah and Talmud. In other words, he's conscious of the fact that he did something unique, that he did something special. Were there others who wrote the entire Talmud? Possibly, but clearly it wasn't an everyday norm. He's celebrating that here. And I concluded them, he writes, on the 12th day of the month of Kislev in the year 103 to within the sixth millennium. In other words, that's the year 12, uh, excuse me, 1343. Is that what I said before? 1343? Mea Vishalish, yeah. That's 1343. And then he goes on to give a blessing to uh, this uh, rabbi, uh, rabbi Matisya, for whom he wrote uh, this manuscript. So I mentioned before that in 1910, a facsimile edition of this lands in Lubavitch. And all the young men who are studying the Talmud are interested in this. This is the facsimile of that edition published in 1910 by a man named Herman Strack. He was not Jewish, but he was very interested in Judaic studies, and he uh, chose to publish uh, this manuscript. Here is the title page, and this is what the inside uh, would have looked at. A few decades before 1910, there was a Jew by the name of Raphael uh, Nassen Nata Rabinowitz. He went to Munich. This is where this manuscript is, is present till today studied it really closely, and found a number of minor uh, changes or differences or variances between the standard text of the Talmud and, and what he saw in this manuscript. And this led him down a path of a long uh, and an important career of uh, trying to determine what is the most perfect text of the Talmud using the Munich manuscript and other manuscripts as well. And that led him to the pr printing of this book called Dikduke Seifrim, which on, on any given page will tell you what the word differences would be in various different manuscripts. So I want to share with you one fascinating variance that you have in this Munich manuscript. We have a passage in the Talmud that says as follows, the world will stand for 6,000 years. Now I need a mention. There, this passage raises many different questions, and we're not going to have the ability to focus on all of them today, so we're just going to make peace with the question, because I want to get the, to the topic that I want to talk about. So the world will stand for 6,000 years. The first uh, 2,000, the first two millennia, is tohu. Tohu means that this is it's a world that's void and in chaos. Why is that? Because the Torah was given in the year 2448. In other words, after 2,000 years, meaning the first 2,000 years, the world was devoid of Torah. And so therefore, the first, 2000, the first two millennia, tohu, chaos. Then we get 2,000 years of Torah because the Torah was given and uh, for the next 2,000 years, and thereafter, we're studying the Torah and living by the Torah's precepts. The next 2,000 years are marked by Yemos HaMashiach, the days of Mashiach, which means that from the year 240 of the Common Era, for the next 2,000 years, so we're still in that time, from the year 240 to the year 1240, and then from the year 1240 to the year 2240, those two millennia are marked as the era of Mashiach. What does it mean that it's marked as the era of Mashiach? Mashiach has not arrived yet. What this means is, according to this Talmudic passage, Mashiach could not have come before the year 240 of the Common Era. Again, this is a larger topic, but from the year 240, Mashiach could have come, and then look at 
how the text concludes on a very sad note, and due to our many sins, we have lost what we have lost. Meaning, the Talmud is, this discussion in the Talmud is happening after the year 240 of the Common Era, whether it's in the year 340, in the year 440, whatever you want. It's that conversation is happening in the centuries thereafter. And so they're like, from the year 240, the Mashiach could have come. He hasn't come. So due to our sins, we've lost those years. How many years? We've lost what we lost. This is how this passage appears in all editions, in all printed editions of the Talmud from the very first printing uh, until today. Now let's have a look at how this appears in the Munich manuscript. So here's an image along with the text typed out. The first thing you'll notice is that there are many abbreviations. And that's because this is how this uh, uh, scribe managed to get the entire Talmud into one codex was by using uh, a, so, many for, so many instances of, of abbreviating his words. So it says, the text says the same thing, 6,000 years, first 2,000 chaos, next 2,000 Torah, next 2,000 the era of Mashiach. Due to our sins, we lost what we lost, but then there's words. Those words that I marked here in red, which aren't present, which are not present in the printings of the Talmud, and we have a number. What's the number? 619. 600. We lost 619 years. In other words, we know when this manuscript was written. It was written in the 1340s. But remember, it's copying an older manuscript, which is copying an older manuscript, which is copying an older manuscript. We're seeing over here that there was a manuscript that we don't have today that was copied in the year, in 619 years after the year 12, uh, 240. So I put the math up on the screen. The year 240, you add 619, that gets you to the year 859 of the Common Era. There was a scribe somewhere in the world who copied a Talmud in the year 859 of the Common Era. And when he's writing about, oh, Mashiach could have come in the year 240 and we lost that time, he added in how much time from the year that he is in. And so in that regard, he wrote, we're 619 years, 859 uh, of the Common Era. So while we don't have any physical Talmudic manuscripts that we can date uh, to 859 of the Common Era, here we see the echoes of a Talmudic manuscript that was copied in that age, even as its physical uh, remains aren't with us, but the echoes of it have come to us through this Munich manuscript. Was this just a random scribe in the year 859 who added in words to the Talmud? Would anyone do that, just add in dates? Highly unlikely. In fact, we have another manuscript. This one comes out of Yemen. It is not entirely clear when this was written, but it's the exact same passage. But I want you to notice how it deals with this particular text. It says, due to our many sins, we lost what we lost, and it gives us a number, a different number, 590 years. And then on the side, it says, non aleph, nosach acher, another version, and it gives another number, 538 years, excuse me, 538 years, 538 years. What's happening here? There was a scribe in Yemen. We don't know exactly when. Well, he's copying his Talmud. So there's one manuscript he's copying from that traces itself back to a copy of Talmud that was written in the year 830. But there's also another manuscript that traces itself back 
to a manuscript that was copied in the year 778. In other words, I think the evidence suggests that in the early era, the original passage of the Talmud was stated by a living person. That living person mentioned, we lost what we lost. And when he was speaking, he said the number of years. And that was copied down into the Talmud. But that part of the Talmud remained live. And as scribes were copying the Talmud in the first few centuries after the Talmud was finalized, they kept on updating that number. And that's why we see echoes of it here. One manuscript 778, one 830. I showed you the other one that we saw before. And then at a certain point, it became unfashionable, and they just dropped the date, and they just left the text. Due to our sins, we've lost what we lost. So as I said before, suddenly now, although I can't touch a manuscript from the 8th century, suddenly now, I see the manuscript of the 8th century. I see that manuscript from the year 778, which gets us really close to the, uh, the time uh, that the Talmud was actually ratified. In fact, Maimonides has a passage in where he writes sometime in the late 1100s that he has a manuscript of Talmud that is 500 years old that brings us roughly back to the same uh, period in time. So I personally find that very interesting to be able to hear, and to what is actually a very sad passage about talking about the Jewish exile, but at the same time, we're able to see that concept of that date being updated and updated. And at a certain point, they just threw in the towel. They said, you know something, we don't have to continue counting. Uh, we'll just, we get the point. I want to show one more uh, Talmudic manuscript because now we come to the commentaries. And the question I had was, what about the commentaries to the Talmud in the manuscript era? Did they appear on the page? And the answer for Rashi is very often yes. We saw before in the Munich manuscript that it's just the text of the Talmud and that's it. There are, however, numerous manuscripts that contain the commentary of Rashi. Rashi lived in the 11th century in France and wrote the most important commentary on the Talmud. Here is an example of a, a 14th century Talmudic manuscript that appears, it's uh, Tractate Shabbos, and uh, the surrounding, the commentary uh, 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 that is surrounding the text is from Rashi. This is not the only one. Now, today when we look at the Talmud, we have Talmud, Rashi, and the second most notable commentary is called Tosfus, which means additions. These are Rashi's grandchildren and students in the area of France and Germany during the 12th and 13th uh, centuries and their commentary. This very rarely, almost never, appears alongside the Talmud in a Talmudic manuscript. Very few, maybe you can count on one or two hands. Usually, they're presented in separate manuscripts. So someone who wanted to study Tosfis during the medieval era, they would have had one text of Talmud, they would have had a second text of the Tosfis in a separate book. That would have been the normal way. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because that's gonna become important because when we reach the print age, a significant shift happened, which we'll get to now, that we'll transition into printing. For the longest time, it was assumed that the earliest prints of the Talmud were done in Italy in the late 1400s. It turns out, however, after World War II, uh, it's been determined that this is not true. The earliest prints of the Talmud likely happened in Spain and in Portugal in the last 10 to 15 years before the Jews were expelled from Spain. The Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492. All Jews in Portugal were forcibly converted in 1497. There, the Jewish books 
that were in Spain and Portugal did not have a high survival rate. Jews were not able to take them with them, and there were confiscations that happened. So understandably, very few of this has come to us today. But now we know that these printings existed, and in libraries around the world, there are uh, pages from these editions. So let's speak about this for a, a minute. In the library in Crown Heights, known as the uh, library of Agudas Hasidei Chabad. This is the library, the collections of the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, and the seventh Rebbe. Uh, uh, very important collections of Judaica. There are about 17 pages from a Talmud printed in Guadalajara, Spain in 1482. You're looking at the image right now. Uh, the text of the Talmud, this is Tractate Chagiga. The, the, the text of the Talmud is presented in block letters and on the side in the cursive is Rashi's commentary. Although Rashi was not from Spain, uh, by the time we reach the 15th century, Rashi is universally accepted and recognized as the most important commentary, and even Spanish Jews are including him in their Bibles and in their Talmuds as well. Here is a, a fragment from a printing that, um, from one of these Spanish uh, printings of the Talmud, and I want to talk about uh, a variation that I find particularly interesting here. The Talmud here, uh, and it's often quoted in the name of the Talmud, that a thief, before they tunnel into a victim's home, they pray to God. And when, if you ever see that citation, that passage, you'll notice that it, it says, look at Talmud Brachas, folio 63a, but then I'll say, in the version of the Ein Yaakov. And that's because if you look at the standard version of the Talmud, that passage is not there. What is the Ein Yaakov? The Ein Yaakov is in the 1400s. There was a, name, a man by the name of Rabbi Yaakov Ibn Khabib, and he made the decision to isolate all of the non-legal sections of the Talmud. So, for example, the stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the, or the stories of uh, Purim, for example, the, uh, Esther and Achashverosh. Let's remove that from the Talmud and create a separate work, which he called Ein Yaakov. His name was Yaakov. The idea being those who want to study Talmud but don't want to learn the legal sections, which can be complex, and want to focus on these more interesting uh, passages, they'll study that. So when we look at his Ein Yaakov, we find that he presents this line there. In the proper place, when we come to tractate brachot, in the place that corresponds to 63a, he has this passage that a thief, before they tunnel into the victim's home, they pray. Who was Rabbi Yaakov ibn Khabib? Well, he was a Spanish Jew. What Talmud did he use? He used the Spanish Talmud. There were other versions of the Talmud in other countries. And when we look at them, including the Munich manuscript that I showed you before, that passage is not there. That line is not there. It's in the Spanish versions of the Talmud. It's not in the Germanic versions of the Talmud. Yaakov ibn Khabib had it because he is a Spanish Jew. You're looking here at a text of the Spanish Talmud, and all the way at the top you find that line. The people commonly say that a thief, before they enter, they tunnel through the home, they call out to God. Uh, this may, what happened over here seems to be that this may have been regarded as a little bit of a dangerous passage. Is it justifying thief, uh, thievery on any level, on robbery? Is it saying there's something good and redeemable in such a terrible act? And so we can see how perhaps that's why it falls out of the Talmud in some editions. Uh, this is an example of these types of variations that when we study these pages of the Spanish Talmud, we're able to uh, recover that lost world. 
Here is the final page of Tractate Gitten from a printing in Portugal in the city of Faro. 14, oh, well, we'll talk about the year in a second. But it has a colophon, so we need to study that colophon to learn about this printing. The page is damaged, but we'll focus here on the colophon. It says, Nigmara, it's been completed in the portion of the week of Misham Roa Evan Yisrael. That is a verse lifted from Parshas Vayechi. That's the last Parsha in the book of Genesis. Uh, so it's, uh, well, give or take, uh, a December, December, January is when this Torah portion, yeah, January is usually when this uh, Torah portion is read. And then it says, Uvo on Birina, coming to Zion with joy. Now that's a verse. This verse is being used to tell you what the year is. You need to use these letters to calculate the year. But if you look real well, you'll notice that over the vase, resh, nun, and he, there is a dot hovering above those letters. That, we know this from elsewhere, this is not only here, that tells us we need to use those dots to figure out which letters to count in our counting. In other words, don't count uvahutzion, take that out, focus on veiz, reish, non hey, that is the year. Now, usually when uh, we, when uh, colophons are giving dates, and, and in other instances as well, they're not going to count the millennia because they assume you know which millennia. If you didn't figure out which millennia you're in, then we have other problems. So they're only counting the hundreds and the tens, etc. So what is the year of Arena? We're in the year 5,000. Uh, uh, and uh, so in other words, we're after the year 1240. So start counting 1240, start counting Virina from the year 1240. What does that get you to? That gets you to 1497. If you count the vase, reish, nun, and hey, that gets you to a Talmud printed in Portugal in the year 1497, and it says this was the patron of this printing. His name was Shmuel Portero. Okay, uh, people looked at this and said, wow, 1497 Portugal, the printing of the Talmud, sounds unreasonable. Why? Well, I mentioned the history before. Let's review it again. December 6th, 1496, there was a decree of expulsion against the Jews of Portugal. Hanukkah, 1496, just a few uh, weeks later, unfortunately, there was a, mave, a, a wave of mass conversions of Jews. In December 1496, December 17, um, that Sunday was Parshas Vayechi. Now remember, that's the week, that is the week when this printing supposedly happened. It, Pesach, a few months later, there was kidnapping and conversion of Jewish children. And October 1497, there was the mass, massive forced conversion in downtown Lisbon, where all Jews were essentially told that they are Christian now, without even having the ability to leave the country. A very tumultuous year, the year Beis Reish Nun Hei, was a very tumultuous year for the Jewish people in Portugal. Can we imagine, some historians and scholars ask, that the decree of expulsion is issued and yet the printing presses in Pharaoh are still uh, churning out books of Talmud? Unbelievable. Uh, we must assume that there's some issue here, there's some typo here, maybe we should calculate it differently. Uh, however, uh, I, I am not impressed by this argument. I, I believe it is completely in keeping with the Jewish spirit to hear on the one hand that there is a decree of expulsion and at the same time to say, but we need to do what we need to do. Business is business, Judaism is Judaism, and we're in the middle of printing a Talmud. We will finish it because we will persevere. I, think, uh, I don't think that is unusual, unfortunately, in our long and difficult history to have done feats like this, a printing of a Jewish book, even under the burden and the, under, under the 
fear that must have been hovering over Jewish uh, uh, minds and hearts at the time. And if that is correct, and I think we should take the Colophon at its word, it's an amazing story about Jewish perseverance, which certainly can be uh, something that inspires us till today. Uh, a number of decades ago, uh, sometime in the 1970s, uh, there was a professor named uh, Yaakov, excuse me, Chaim Zalman Dimitrovsky. He was a professor of Talmud at the JTS in New York, the Jewish Theological Seminary. He collected all of these fragments of pages of Spanish Talmud. We don't have any complete tractate, but we have many pages from across the Talmud. He collected all of them and published them under the title Sri De Babli, the remnants of the Talmudic, uh, of the Babylonian Talmud. And that's uh, the go-to place if you're interested in looking up these uh, manuscripts. This is uh, the go-to um, uh, volume. Now, I mentioned before the Italian printings, indeed these are more famous and these have survived to today. But before we talk about the survival, I want you to look at this highly damaged page. I'll tell you what this page is in a moment, and I'll also tell you why it's highly damaged. I'll just tell you right now, this is a page that is in the library of Agudas Hasidei Chabad in New York. It's part of the collection of the Lubavitcher Rebbes. What is this page? I'll show you first a normal version of what this page is. This is the final page of Sansino. Sansino is a family of printers that is in Italy in the late 1400s. They print uh, the Talmud. They're the first ones to print it in Italy, not in Spain. Spain seems to have proceeded by a few years. But in Italy, they, they print the Talmud, not the entire Talmud, but a few tractates, I don't remember, I think it's around 20 different tractates of Talmud that they, uh, that they uh, printed. Their names were, the father was Yisrael Nassen, and the son's name was Yeshua Shlomo and Sansino. And there was then in England, and maybe there today, I'm not sure, but definitely uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, the Sansino Press. Uh, that's just named after this original uh, printing family that really uh, made a significant difference in terms of the history of Jewish printing. This is the final page. This is the colophon that Yeshua Shlomo is writing about what he did and why he did it. And he waxes poetic here about how the printing of the Talmud is really a game changer in terms of spreading out knowledge uh, amongst the Jewish masses. And then he says, we completed the work, and this is the part that I circled on the screen, here in the city of Sansino in Italy. Today, it's the 20th of the month of Teves in the year of Gemara. Gimel, Mem, Reish, Aleph. That is the year 1484, 1484, and the equivalent is Gemara. We call the Talmud Gemara. So that was a wonderful uh, hashkacha pratis of coincidence where he was able to say the year is the year of the Talmud. This is his colophon. Now let's go back to this page. This page is the very same page. It's just highly damaged. Why is there a page Standalone, just this one page, highly damaged in the Rebbe's library. How did it get there? What is it? Over the, after World War II in the 1960s and 70s, it became a known fact in many libraries around the world that if you have a book that was printed in the 1500s and in the 1600s and maybe even in the early 1700s, the bindings of these books can be a treasure trove. Why is that? Because when a binder, let's say in the 1600s, would bind his book, he would look for scrap paper 
to form the spine of his book. And very often, they would look for old, worn-out paper or used books. And just that was their form of recycling. And very often, they used old Judaica, old Judaica books, Sepharim, that they would use to form the bindings of these books. There are non-Jewish books that were discovered to have in their binding pages of Sepharim. Likewise, the other way around, Jewish books that have pages of non, of secular books. And then there are Jewish books that have pages of Jewish books. The rabbis of the time, there was a rabbi by the name of Shmuel de Medina, he lived in the 1500s. He was adamantly opposed to this. He felt that it was unhalachic. The Magan Avram, writing in the 1600s, in his commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, also says this is not okay. This is not the right way to treat a Judaic manuscript that can no, or print that can no longer be used. Take the page and bury it, Geniza. Don't put it inside another book, because in order to do that, you need to cut it, you need to glue it, and, and, and although you're using it for a holy purpose, but it's just disrespectful. So they cried foul, but the reality is that the bookbinders continued doing this, and that's where this was found. Sometime in the 1970s and 1980s, the, these spines in the books in the library in Crown Heights were examined one by one, and many of them were found to contain these types of pages, and that's what the page you're looking at now. It's that final page from the Tractate Brachos from the 1484 Sansino edition of the Talmud. I should point out that anything printed before the year 1501 has a fancy word for it. Uh, it's called incunabula. That word comes from the Greek, which means cradle, meaning it's from the first 50 or so years of printing. And uh, that means it has more significance in terms of its value. And so these items, even a single page, how much more so a complete volume, really uh, is, is something that when it go, if it ever goes to auction, which is not often, uh, it, it, um, it attracts significant sums of money. We're looking now at the inside of Sansino's 1484 edition of the Tractate Brachot. This is the first uh, uh, folio, and you can immediately notice that this already starts looking familiar. This is how the page of Talmud looks to us today. And why is that? Because he presented the text of the Talmud in the middle. He put Rashi on the inside of the page. And he put Tosfus on the outside of the page. And that was a decision that stuck because almost all printings of the Talmud thereafter did the same thing. And there's something new here. Tosfos is put on the page. I highlighted before that in the manuscript age, this was not done. So this was new, and there were those who were disappointed that this happened, and we'll talk about that in a minute. He is the one, this is the printing house, that put Tosfos on the page. I assume he was a good businessman. He did what his customers wanted. In other words, he, he saw, that's what people were studying. Gemara, the Talmud, Rashi, and Tysus. I don't think he was imposing upon the community something that they weren't interested in. I think to the contrary, he was reacting to how he saw the Talmud being studied in his age. But if you were to open the corresponding page in your Talmud today, the first word and the last word do not correspond. In other words, the page for the, the actual material on the page is not the same with the material that we have. This is, the pages have not yet been standardized. The Maharal lived in the 1500s. Rabbi Yehuda Lowy, he lived in Prague. He wrote a book uh, called um, Nesivos Olam. And in this book, which was published in 1595, 1596, he is, expresses his discontent that Tosfos was put on the page. And the reason for that is as follows. 
what is the key theme of Atosis? The key theme of Atosis is how can the Talmud say A over here if elsewhere in another page, another tractate of Talmud, it says something else that's different? And don't the two contradict? In other words, very rarely is it about dealing with a localized issue. Most often, Tosis is about reconciling different sugyot, different discussions in the Talmud. Well, the Maharal felt that that was not the most important thing for students to be studying. You need to study the text of the Talmud? Yes. You need to study Rashi? Of course, Rashi is the one who allows you to understand what you're reading. What comes next? How do we rule practically? And therefore, he wanted that the Rush, Rabbeinu Usher, who wrote a summary of the Talmud with a focus on getting to the bottom line, move past the discussions, what is the final halacha? He wanted that the rush should be placed alongside the page. Alas, he did not have his way. Toysvis won the day. Until today, those who study Talmud know that number one is Talmud, number two is Rashi, and number three is almost always Toysvis. So, uh, so much so that you'll even hear people say that uh, the real way to study is Gemara, Rashi, Tosis. And in many places, there isn't a focus on learning what is the halacha? What is the bottom line? And I'm not going to say Sansino is the cause, because I mentioned before he was doing what the people wanted, but he definitely was a big part in what became the standard of learning Rashi uh, and Tosfos. Uh, uh, Tosfos followed uh, following Rashi. The standardized page of the Talmud, that takes a few decades, and that's going to wait for a non-Jew. That's going to wait for someone who is the first one to print the entire Talmud. And in fact, right now, we're in the 500th anniversary of that period in time. His name was Daniel Bomberg. He originated from Antwerp, came to Venice. And in Venice, Jews were not allowed to run printing presses. Non-Jews uh, were allowed to. Uh, and he's, his focus was Jewish books. And he printed numerous Jewish volumes. And here you're looking at a title page from Meseches Vachim. This also is from the library uh, in Crown Heights, the, the Rebbe's uh, collection. Uh, and uh, this particular volume was printed in the year 1522. Uh, he started 1520. It took him three years, 1523, which is why you can still say it's kind of a three-year marking of 500 years uh, of the entire Talmud. He's the first one to print the entire thing. Here is the inside of the page. You see he followed Sansino's format of text in the middle, Rashi on the inside, Toysvis on the outside of the page. What's new here is all the way on the top left, you have a page number. And that becomes standard. This is page Mem Aleph. Until today, this is page Mem Aleph in the Talmud, the first word is the first word in the modern printings. The last word is the last word in the modern printings. Word for word, this matches up. And while there's been many changes in the Talmud throughout the 16th, 17th century till today, we're not going to have time to talk about those parts of the story, you are able to see the idea of the daf, the page of the Gemara, appears here, led by a non-Jewish owner of this printing press. Now, did he make these decisions, or he had Jewish people working for him, did they make the decisions? At the end of the day, it was named for him. And so it's commonly said that Bomberg invented the, da the daf, although it's very possible that it was a Jew who did it. But at the end of the day, it is named for him. The reason that's significant is because there's a concept called daf yomi, learning the daf. Well, the definition of the daf 
appears here. If you were doing a daf in a manuscript or an earlier prince, each one started and ended at a different place, depending on the handwriting, the fonts, or whatever it is. So the standardized daf yomi could not have been imaginable without having this. Or for that matter, there is a custom many have to study tractate sota in the period of Sefira, during between Pesach and Shavuos. That's because it has 49 folios corresponding to the 49 days of the Sefira. 49 folios is Daniel Bomberg's invention. If you looked at Sansino, I don't know if he printed that tractate, but if he did, it would be a different number of folios. So that is interesting, and the Rebbe once spoke about that. Uh, uh, in the context where the Rebbe addressed this was another anomaly is page one is always base. Okay? He does not start with Aleph, page one is base. So the Rebbe once spoke about that and said that uh, although it is true that this may have been uh, the act of Ananju, at the end of the day, uh, everything serves as a lesson for us in life. And so therefore, we should be learning a lesson for what does it mean that the first page of Talmud starts with number two, with the Bays rather than the Aleph. What is the lesson? The lesson is that when you sit down at the table, and you take out your Talmud, and you're ready to go to study, what you're doing right now is number two. You're doing the second thing. There's something that had to come prior, and that you need to know came prior, and that is that God gave you the ability, the education, the circumstances, the inner strength to do exactly what you're doing right now. And it's specifically when you have that information in the background of your mind that will empower you to do the number two properly. So the actual reading of the words needs to be preceded by an aleph, needs to be preceded by this background information that really encourages you and motivates you and lets you know that yes, you have the ability to do this. I think this is a good place to end uh, our story uh, today. The Talmud in decades that followed went through numerous printings. A famous instance of Talmudic burning in the year 1553, that's in addition to the burning of manuscripts of the Talmud in 1242. Onerous censorship that created all types of textual problems that was initiated at the end of the 16th uh, century. All of these are real fascinating uh, stories to tell and important stories to tell. Uh, but what I take out of this uh, study is, it, firstly, it motivates me to want to study the Talmud more, specifically by looking at how that process of transmission. We focus a lot on the authorship of the Talmud, and that's great, but so much had to also go right, and so much dedication and skill had to happen to get it from the composers of the Talmud to us today, whether it's in the manuscript age or whether it was in the printing age. And we should be obviously grateful for that. And one of the ways of expressing that gratitude and thanks is when we open the pages of the Talmud and we study it and we grapple with this text, then we're doing something really amazing, linking all the way back to Moses at Sinai. Thank you very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings.